My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. The hollow earth, UFOs, aliens invading, fluoride in the water, they spray our skies daily. When I talk about these things, they think I'm crazy. There's no escaping anymore, the evil that we're facing. Illuminati mind control, they're sacrificing babies. The end of days, but anyways, my family thinks I'm crazy. What, they don't want to listen to you? No, they don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They're just like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah, so who are we talking about today, Matt? trying to tell you alien guys rule for sure dude that's the sickest shit ever they've been getting shit (laughs) on i know by the mainstream media and the general public forever the public will never really want to admit it because the public will never fully want to admit that those guys were right like that's the tough thing like we all have to swallow that pill and none of us want to swallow it have them rise to the top of like public consciousness yeah i'm listen i'm down yeah but, but and the general public is not gonna let it happen. Yeah, the general public is Sorry, not gonna let dorks. those motherfuckers get in. I told you so. That's how they. That's how they play. That's what. That's what science fiction is, by the way. Science fiction, all the movies, all the shows are just a cover, because like that shit is actually going on. But if you if you are the guy that is the whistleblower, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, he's just talking about deep space now. Yeah, you know. So we have you know Stargate Atlantis for sure is a cover. Stargate SG one SG one. All the Stargate awesome movie. That's yeah, a there is definitely movie. a fucking Stargate somewhere. Uh, what is the Stargate? Is it you just step into it? It's like a portal. Oh uh, yeah. You get to travel. It creates a wormhole between that and another Stargate, and you get to instantaneously <laughs> travel through space. Like the premise behind the Stargate movie is that all of the mythology from like ancient Egypt and ancient Greece, it's real, but they were actual gods. Oh, like sick. like the Eye of Horus that they talk about in it sounds like the best show ever. It's pretty sick. Fuck. They are landed when they were there on the river in 1953 at the age of seven. Uh, when they came out and started walking me back to the ship, they said, "Friend Martin, don't you remember us?" We have come again. Don't you remember us? I say, uh, I'm looking at them, you know, them big ears. And I'm saying, no, who are you? What are you? Who are you? And they said, friend Martin, 
Don't you remember us there near the Tigris and Euphrates? In the Valley of Giza, when your ancestors did raise the pyramids in the Valley of Giza. Don't you remember us? And I said, oh, it's kind of coming back to me. <laughs> you said, oh, Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast, and I am absolutely stoked to have this gentleman here with me today. He is one of three hosts on the fantastic podcast Stoner Dads. He also has his own podcast alongside his lovely wife called Two Jack Bros, and of course, he is a comedian with a degree in economics. The great Sydney Gant joins me here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Sydney, how are you? I'm doing very well, man. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Right on. I'm excited too. So for folks who, who don't know, Stoner Dads is a really fun show, but you've been doing Two Jack Bros for uh, a couple of years, quite longer than, than Stoner Dads. And what really hit me uh, mm-hmm. with Two Jack Bros is, A, the, the chemistry of you and your lady, it really inspires me in my relationship. Your podcast, Two Jack Bros, is a really, really unique show. And what I was really struck by <laughs> is how you bring comedians up the chakras. And I wanted to ask you, did you yeah. anticipate that being uh, difficult? Because it doesn't seem difficult. But I, I always have a prejudice thinking uh, the average person isn't so into spiritual stuff. So how, how did you... F- you know, anticipate that going, talking about these spiritual, new age, metaphysical topics with comedians. I, Mark, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I was more concerned about getting them to stop talking about any one question, right? Because we're talking about comedians. We're talking about people who more than anybody else loves talking about themselves, whether it's something good or the most embarrassing thing that you can get a human to talk about. As long as they're getting to talk about themselves, you will get a willing comedian, right? Mm. So, I mean, so uh, real quick, I'll tell you some, look, I can see the questions right now. Everybody gets the same seven questions, which is, uh, you know, like how did Jordan overcome fear? Uh, Somebody or something you want to apologize to. The most disappointing, like how do you deal with disappointment? Uh, What have you learned from grief? Your favorite lie to tell. Uh, Things that you thought were separate, but now you see they're the same. And one thing that you can't give up and why. So, it's just like where, like I'm like, like how did you learn to overcome fear? That could be an hour with any one comedian. That's a tough one. That's a, that's a tough question. And it, with a comedian being afraid, you know, that's part and parcel to the career. I mean, you got to get mm-hmm. over that, or, or else you don't make it. You know, like I've done one open mic in my life, one open mic. Yeah. <laughs> one folks, I've not been able to go back. Maybe <laughs> I can blame it on the pandemic, but, uh, but no, I have not gone back and I'm sure there's a little bit of fear involved with that, but yeah, being a comic is, is a, is a tough job. I work for Sam Tripoli and, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen this sort of behind the scenes of the life of a comic and yeah there's mm-hmm. a lot there's a lot more than just telling jokes but uh you start with that root chakra overcoming fear and 
maybe we can shift gears a little bit and talk Absolutely. about talk about you, Sydney, because you you yeah. lived a, an unconventional life. You you lived in uh, eleven different homes by the <laughs> eight. I've been mean, while you're still a kid, you know, all over moving mm-hmm. about, uh, and this is sort of built. Uh, uh, unusual confidence, which inspires me. I think, I think it's, uh, it's definitely got me to think twice about, uh, my shyness, but, um, when did that start for you? Was it sports? Was it just growing up in that kind of household where you had to sort of stand up for yourself? I mean, when did this overcoming fear, uh, become like, cause now I look, I, I think Sydney's a fearless guy. So when did, when did you pass that? Oh, wow. So I would, I would say that I was probably the most fearful guy growing up. And I was, uh, you know, growing up in the communities that I grew up in, they were very kind of dangerous outside and, and really scary. And a lot of the reasons that those environments were scary were my family. So they didn't see it as scary as I saw it. You, you know what I mean? You know, my mom was, you know, trying to thrust me out into the world that I was absolutely terrified of. So she she would be, she was very heavy handed in the way that she handled trying to get her son to not be, uh, you know, with, with her words, not mine, a pussy. You know, she was trying very hard to depussify me. Mm. And so she, you know, she would like take me out, out, out front of the yard with boxing gloves and, you know, make me make me box her until other neighborhood kids came and start forming a circle. And then she would kind of make me box all of them, you know. And uh, these these kids were just like excited older kids that would see a thing like, oh, I can I can knock this little kid's head off in front of his mom, you know. So that was terrifying. Uh, anytime I ever had a problem or if, if she ever found out that any kid I could never tell her ever that a kid teased me or made fun of my name or anything because she would literally take me to that person's house to fight. And that was terrifying. So it got to a point where I was, uh, I was just afraid of everything, just like absolutely afraid of everything. And I was obsessed with uh, the Looney Tunes growing up. Mm. And I remember there was an episode of Looney Tunes where they were, uh, doing you know they were they were mocking uh the president that's responsible for this quote but i don't remember who it was i just this quote stuck with me but you know the quote there's nothing to fear but fear itself mm-hmm. right and then um i had somebody i didn't quite understand what it meant but it was like you know, as soon as i heard that you know i was like as a person who is like whose life was all about fear it was like i should know what that means you know so i had uh one of my uncles explain it to me and he just basically said, you know, fear, like being afraid is the only thing to be afraid of. So if you're afraid of something, you have to go after it. And from that point on, it was, Mark, I swear to you, it was literally that day. Anything that I feel a little trepidation about, I just forced myself into it. And that's just been my way for so long that I think, I think it, I think the out on the outside, it kind of looks like I'm fearless, but on the inside, it's just like I if, if something scares me, my first reaction is to get right after that. Mm. Yeah, you have drive, man. And, and at first, you know, maybe if somebody tunes into one of your shows, your podcast just once, they might hear you tell a story and think, oh, this guy, you know, he's just he's just got a big ego or something. But the more I've listened to you tell stories, 
the more I realize, like, no, you actually have this drive. You actually are this passionate and you are not afraid to talk about it either, which I think a lot of people get the instinct of like, you know, humility uh, in those situations. And you, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you're not humble, but uh, you you express it in a way that's joyful. And I think that that's really important <laughs> because because some people, you know, with with this competitive world that we live in, you know, they take that um, as an offense. They take that as maybe even like, oh, he thinks he's better than me. When really, I think people should uh, think about that instinct that we have to project onto others and realize that maybe the reason you see that in Sydney and feel a certain way is because you're not acting on that impulse yourself. And that's exactly what happened to me as I was listening to podcasts. I mean, I've listened to Stoner Dad since it started. So it's been about a year now, year and a half. I kind of realized like, oh, I'm projecting onto this guy. It's not that like he's egotistical. It's like I don't have the drive that he's talking about. And there's some kind of like feeling that's stirring up in me about this. So I just wanted to to kind of bring that up. And I forgot to mention mm. in the intro, you're a martial artist. And I've been a martial mm -hmm. artist for almost 10 years now. When did this come into uh, your life? Because obviously your mom hosting uh, boxing matches that you weren't a, a sort of signing up for on your front lawn, that would lead a person to possibly want to know how to fight. Uh, did you immediately make the connection as a kid? Like, okay, like if I want to, if I'm going to keep getting in these fights, I better learn how to fight. Was that a sort of thought that came to you or, or how did martial arts come up? Well, it, it, it did stem from those, uh, those, those that, that boxing out in the yard. So when that would happen, you know, I, I, I told my mom, like I wanted to get into some sort of uh, martial art after because of that. But I mean, the truth was, I just, I, I, I learned about judo and some of like, again, when you're learning about things, when you're a little kid, you know, everything's, uh, I guess explaining um, uh, binaries, you know, so it's easier to explain to a kid. And it was uh, the binary that I was explaining judo was like, uh, boxing, you get hit, judo, you don't get hit. So I was like, I want to do judo, mom. <laughs> <laughs> and dude, I was like, dude, my mom boxed growing up. My mom actually went to a boxing gym and learned how to box. My mom was, um, you know, uh, she gets embarrassed when I say this, but it's the truth. But she was a street fighter in our neighborhood. She was very... Um, very well known for her undefeated record as a street fighter. And she was one of these people that there would be like, like sanctioned hood fights and people betting and gambling on them and things like that. And uh, so she, she, she had a lot of, you know, she, she kind of saw uh, judo or, or uh, just martial arts in general as kind of like a, a cowardly way out, like a way to, mm. a way to fight without fighting, you know? So that was tough to even get her to, to take me to do that. Mm. And so, yeah, that was, uh, that was when I was really young. So I would say probably I got into that when I was about 10. Now, do you think that that, cause that impression that your mother has is not, you know, just hers. There's a lot, of, I mean, 10 years ago, martial arts was sort of becoming mainstream with the UFC, but you're, you're, several years older than me. So I imagine uh, that has shifted a bit. Don't you think? I mean, UFC has kind of become 
akin to the NFL, right? So now the the average street person, you know, who who has that mentality of like, oh, this this is you know how you get tough is street fighting. That's kind of shifted because I remember that was a big thing that people mm-hmm. would tell you when when I was a kid and I would talk about oh I'm in karate class or I'm in you know MMA class they'd be like oh yeah well you know that's nothing compared to street fighting you know the, you'd never stand a chance doing a karate against uh you know a guy like you know who's the um Kimbo Slice like Kimbo Slice yeah. is you know, not the best example but he stands as kind of like a street fighter who actually was tough enough to hold his own with the UFC for a little while but yeah that mm-hmm. it's kind of it's an interesting uh prejudice that people had against martial arts mm-hmm. what do you think that yeah, is I, uh why well, I, I would I would just because it's just uh, the lack of coming out I mean like listen we can get into this and and I think it has to do with a lot of things, right? So, um, you know, you, you just think about like um, uh, the, the Asian explosion into cinema, you know, back in the day. And, you know, like I'm, I'm not necessarily a woke guy, but like there's some things that are just true, right? And at that time, Asian men were seen as pretty weak until Bruce Lee. Mm. And Bruce Lee is like three feet tall. You know what I mean? So like their toughest guy, like they, they, I mean, again, a hero of mine, a hero of all my uncles and stuff, but still he's, he's a miniature human man. So the toughest guy that they've produced could fit in my pocket. So yeah, it's not easy to see, you know, when you're looking at uh, our representation of you know, warrior men, like our boxers, even back then, they're like these big, like, you know, we, we laud the heavyweight champions, right? Mm-hmm. You never hear anybody talking about, like, the only reason why we know about one of the lightweights is because Floyd Mayweather is an undefeated boxer. <laughs> right. If he wasn't an undefeated boxer, we wouldn't know anybody in his weight class, right. you know? It's all the heavyweights. So when you're comparing the people that we praise in America, which are these giant men that can barely move compared to, uh, you know, these Asian martial artists who are like, you know, these men have to make sure are not like in the tread of their boxing shoes after they're doing footwork. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think that has, a, I think that has a lot to do with it. Like I think going forward that has changed. Right. But like you could not convince my mom that Floyd Mayweather wouldn't knock out every single person in the UFC. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think there's still a lot of people who, who feel that way and yeah, you know, it, it, people are set in their ways, but I, I've only asked this question in the reverse, but I, I feel like I have to ask you, Sydney, uh, is your family mm-hmm. crazy? <laughs> Do you think uh, your that, family's crazy? Yeah. I, Mark, I think my family is objectively crazy. <laughs> Well, that's the yeah. first time. Usually we ask if our if our families think we're crazy on this show, and the answer is typically yes. Um, so I'll ask you that, too. Does your family think you're crazy? I mean, you're, you're quite a um, an inspiration, mm-hmm. I would imagine, to them. I mean, you sort of set your own path. You broke the mold that you were cast in, and you're, you're doing really well for yourself. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, they definitely think I'm crazy. And I'll, and I, and I'll uh, link that back to something you were saying earlier about, you know, how people can like maybe look at me and consider me to be like egotistical or arrogant, which is very common. It ha- not very common, but it happens. 
but it's funny the way that it happens because I think my family is they're they're in they're they fall into this. So when people see me at first, before they get to know me, before I, before I talk long enough for people to have a really good sense of who I am, when they first see me and they see what is like a confident guy, uh, they root for it. People root for that immediately. They see somebody confident and they want to believe that that is possible. But they believe in confidence in this way. It's like confidence is this thing that's almost separate from being a human, right? So like he has confidence, but he has something that I couldn't have because I'm like, I'm subjected to all these human failings and like these, these you know, human limitations. And then I start talking and then people are like, oh shit, he's retarded. Oh my God. Like, how is he confident and I'm not? And that's what I think it starts to get, like people start to judge it a little more. And I think that's what my family falls into because like for all of the successes that I've had, like, you know, I was in honors classes in, in, in school. I was in AP classes in high school. I was the vice president of the National Honor Society. I was a track star growing up. I was constantly in the newspaper being interviewed and stuff. Then I was signing autographs for people at track meets when I was like a senior in high school. But my family also knows that like, you know, like sometimes I just don't tie my shoes. You know what I mean? It was just like, like I would like, I've like, like I, I would, I was, the, I would get dressed really quickly. I would, I would sleep as long as possible, get up with like five minutes to get to school, like throw everything on and get to school. And I'd show up in school with like my shirt on backwards and shit like that. Like they know that about me as well, you know? So it's, it's like, so when they see me accomplishing all these things on, on one hand, it's like, Oh my God, that's amazing. That's amazing. But then on another hand, when they know like how imperfect I am, I feel like it puts a lot of pressure on them. To, to feel like they should be accomplishing things. And if they're not pushing themselves to accomplish things like I am, then I must have a very negative opinion of the way they're conducting themselves in life. In life. So as um, almost like as a, a defense against that, they just start accusing me of being arrogant so that it dismisses you know, any need to do what I'm doing. Mm, right deflecting what they lack in themselves because they're unwilling to 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 make that step forward right as i described and yeah I, maybe it took me a little bit uh of listening but yeah i i certainly had that same kind of uh um realization that what you were kind of inspiring in me was really an opportunity to improve myself. And I think our society just doesn't um, allow for this way of thinking as much because we're so set in this like competition sort of, um, you know, everybody has this sort of uh, chip on their shoulder and mm -hmm. it feels like if we could just get to a point where we were more, less sensitive and more open to like rib each other and joke like the way you guys do on stoner dads dad me i mean this is why i enjoy listening to this kind of stuff i mean sure i learned a few things here and there but for the most part it's like an emotional uh reprise from the rest of life mm. you know when you're kind of going out and dealing with maybe uh people who you don't know sort of small talk and whatnot there's this like inauthentic stiffness that 
has mm. kind of wears away and listening to comedy podcasts just kind of eases that tension for me. But uh, I think it has something to do with the fact that you guys are just so authentic speaking with one another mm. and it kind of pushes you guys to, um, you know, hold each other accountable. Like Matt, the way he's been talking lately about his relationship with pornography and like being open mm -hmm. about that and how he's like, you know, I haven't jerked off to porn in months and it's not even a big deal. And you guys are all kind of laughing, you know, and you, you, maybe you guys don't have that same relationship with it, but you're supporting his authentic experience of this. You're not judging it because, you know, oh, you still like porn or whatever, you know, and I think mm -hmm. that's really what this um, this world needs more of, you know, and maybe that's just our American bias and how our American culture is, but maybe this is a good segue into what we we're hoping to, to discuss, which is how culture actually shapes language rather than language shaping culture. At least this is the sort of point you wanted to make, right? And I think people can argue either way, but it seems like uh, culture shapes language and, and we see uh, how language can really ensnare people and change their life and limit their life if they're not, you know, brought up and raised their awareness isn't raised early in life you know they you see people with limited vocabulary having a very limited means of uh you know where they can go in life right yeah so the, the reason the reason why again so this is something that i'm just like you know i've been i, I do love language i love language i love communication and when i'm when i'm researching things in my spare time that tends to be what i'm looking more into and right now I'm listening to this guy, John McWhorter. He's giving these lectures on, on language, what he calls the language hoax. And so I do, the reason why I believe that culture uh, shifts language, which is his uh, point of view, is so when I, in sixth grade was when my, so my mom, the reason why I moved in and lived in so many different houses growing up is because my mom had a drug problem, right? And she also had a temper problem. She fought at work all the time and she would get fired from jobs and then we'd get evicted from places. And that's why I ended up living in so many different places. Finally, when she was at the point where she needed to get her life together and start trying to make things steady for herself, she couldn't really do it with uh, her children until my, my brother and me, my older sister was already running away from the house at this point. She wasn't really in the picture, but she took, she sent my brother and myself to live with my grandma and then she went to uh, a rehab like an hour away. And that was the last time that I ever lived with my mom, right? So it was, this, this was the beginning of sixth grade. Now, when I went to live with my grandma, it wasn't necessarily the best environment, right? Uh, my, my, my grandma kicked my mom out of the house. My mom, my mom got pregnant at 13, I believe it was. And she kicked my mom out of the house because when my mom told my grandma that she was pregnant, my grandma could no longer deny that her husband was raping my mom. Right? So she was not pregnant by my grandma's husband, but the fear of that being the case, like blew the whole entire family apart. Right. But they, they, from what, it, from what I hear it's like, they weren't necessarily the nicest people. My grandma had 14 kids and they are some fucked up people, man. And so when I went to move to that house, it was it was generationally toxic, right? And 
I didn't know how much or the extent to which my mom was the black sheep of the family. And therefore I didn't know how much they didn't want my brother and me living in that house. Like I, in my opinion, I mean, from the way I saw it, it was like, oh, you know, we're going to go live with our grandma. She's saving us. But she, they, I mean, they all resented. There were, there were multiple adults also living in that house. And um, so the, the first day that my mom took me to live in that house, it was two, three o'clock in the morning. She pulled me and my brother out of bed in a very dramatic fashion, took us to live with our grandma, dropped us off, left, whole big scene. And then uh, that morning, uh, I was woken up by one of my, apparently my grandma was calling for me. I didn't hear her. And she had to call past my aunt's room. And my aunt was so sick and tired of hearing my grandma yell that she came up to the attic where we were sleeping. And instead of like, you know, like nudging me awake, she just started pounding on my face, you know? And um, like, I didn't know what was happening, you know? And, and I woke up and I was like really afraid. And my brother and I were laying in the same bed. And because I didn't know what was happening, I jumped over top of my brother to cover him up because I didn't know if I was the only one being hit or we were being hit, you know? And I jumped on him to cover him up and uh, she left. Like uh, that, that was like my, that was my first day in that house. She just started cackling and then she went downstairs and she got on the phone to call one of her, one of her friends. It was actually a good person who was on her way to work. Uh, she called that friend to catch her before she left the house so she could brag about what she just did to me. So as I was coming downstairs, like, you know, it scratches on my face because she had these like long nails and these ridiculous bracelets that she wore, like oh, who's, I mean, she fucking slept in them apparently, but it was like a Mortal Kombat character, you know what I mean? And dude, it's like, so I, I have all these scratches on my face and they're like, they're not deep scratches, so they're the kind that burn, you know? Because yeah. it's like, I'm also in the attic with all the insulation, so like that event caused me to be sweating profusely. I was terrified, Mark. And it was like, so I'm sweating profusely, the sweat's pouring into these scratches. I'm walking past her room and I hear her bragging about what she just did to me. And she's laughing about how I jumped on my brother to protect him. And it was just like, I couldn't believe that this is the environment that I was thrust into because as bad as it was with my mom, uh, I would say that she gave my brother and me maybe too much love. Like she wasn't the best at knowing how to love and be loved because of the situation she came through, but she definitely overcompensated with um deep deep compassion and uh so i had to change i had to change the language of my of my mind so that i could be able to flourish in that environment right because i went from an from an environment with my mom where you know like it was like i could do no wrong you know like i was her little angel and you know i, I was uh you know I, she's constantly telling me that I could do this and I could do that and I could, I could be the president and I could be that. And now I'm in an environment where because she's my mom, all of my uh, adult peers and, and guardians are telling me that I'm worthless. I ain't shit. Um, you know, uh, you know, ra some racial things were going on. Like my, my grandmom and most of my aunts and uncles are, are way lighter than my mom in my family. And um, 
So I was dealing with a lot of that. (laughs) And I had to, uh, I had to change the language of my mind in a sense that it's like, uh, because I was was having a hard time loving uh, these people. And um, again, growing up as a fan of like Looney Tunes, I was also obsessed with Batman and, and these types and, and the martial arts, I just knew, I, I knew that it would be wrong for me to grow the hate and anger that I was feeling for them, right? And so every night when I went to bed, I had to recondition my brain on what family was and what what people were, right? Because they weren't even treating me like a human at that point. And so I had to, I had to condition my, my brain to like, understand that that's who they are they have their limitations they they have their own darkness that they have to go through and that doesn't necessarily you know there could be reasons why they're doing these evil things that that are way beyond me and um loving loving them because they're human isn't wrong (laughs) you know what i mean yeah yeah wow i imagine that felt very um like you had a lot of responsibility as a young man you know like you Mm -hmm. you felt like probably like okay mom's not here anymore i gotta deal with these people and i can't grow to hate them because that's only gonna make my life worse i mean i don't know if you even saw that far ahead at that point but that instinct inside of you to not hate them i mean man that's that's really big that's that's it's a lot. You're yeah. hitting me right now, Sid. <laughs> yeah, dude. So my only contextualization for it was uh, was Batman and how every now and again he would get overcome with his past mm. and he'd start like going a little ham on people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then he'd have to reconnect with himself. And usually if, if there was like a, a comic book where that was happening with him, there was another villain for whom that was completely taking control of them, mm-hmm. right? So that's, I was just trying my hardest to not be a Batman villain. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That that sort of reality in those really great stories that DC and Marvel gave us that the, the true evil comes from the corruption of the, the human soul, you know, and that we all have the same equal chance to be good in this world and... You know, some people are are treated really, really poorly and uh, succumb to that and end up treating others poorly. So right on to you, brother, for not uh, succumbing to that. Now, that was, you said, the sixth grade. So you're in, you know, secondary school, middle school, dealing with all this stuff. What was high school like if, if middle school was that tough? I mean, you obviously you got into sports. I imagine you probably kind of found your your group, your friends at that age. But what was mm-hmm. it like? I mean, you grew up in uh, Pottstown, which is kind of uh, suburban PA. So mm-hmm. what was that like? It's, like a, it's, it's more of like a suburban rural. Town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean again like outside of the house uh everything was i mean i lived a pretty charmed life for the most part you know like i was um i was an exemplary student you know all through school you know i was uh and because of the the hard life that i had growing up i was also a little precocious i was i was more comfortable talking to adults than a lot of kids my age uh, which meant that i had even from you know even in elementary school i had always had a very good uh talking relationship with my teachers you know, and they, and 
every stage of school that I was always in, uh, I was, uh, they, you know, they loved how mature and uh, wise I was told I was wise by all of my teachers growing up. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, even high school, school was relatively easy compared to what I was leaving to go to school. Right. Now, does that play into your role now as a teacher? Because you're not just a, a martial artist. You're actually an instructor uh, at a jiu-jitsu school. Is that correct? I, I, I do uh, sometimes volunteer with the, the kids. So uh, like Tim Butterly, who does Stoner Dads with me, mm. he teaches more consistently at the gym than I do. I'm kind of like a, I'm like a high-end concierge at our gym. So uh, anything, anytime somebody, I need to step up for something, like that's... I'm, I'm that guy. Mm, awesome. So if like a, if a teacher can't make it or like my wife also, she's an instructor uh, at the gym. So sometimes she has to take the class by herself and she might, she might ask me to come help her with it and stuff like that. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 So fit, but fitness stuff, I I'm, I'm very, I'm more uh, impactful on the fitness stuff at our gym for the adults uh, than, than overall martial arts instruction. Okay. So maybe not so much with other students, but at least with your own children, you probably uh, take that role as a mentor uh, very seriously, given, you know, you, you had that maturity at such a young age. Do you see that in your own kids or do you think you've kind of as a, a parent given them a, a different life than the one you were raised in? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's different, but it's, it's wild how many parallels. Mm. there are for my life and their life because of course i'm trying to give them something way different than i had uh although it's it's tough right because and i think butterly would have the same uh issue because he and i both grew up in very hard environments and that that shapes you in a way that makes you savvy about things mm. now because of how hard we worked through our lives to get away from that type of environment our kids don't have to deal with that same situation that we had growing up, but there's a key element that's going to be missing from that now. And it's like, well, how do you give them that element that like that sobering element of what life can be like without putting them in that danger that you grew up in? Right. So, I mean, that that's kind of tough because you also want them to experience as much joy as possible. But you know that if they if they experience too much joy now, then later on in life they're not going to be able to create it themselves. So it's a it's a tough balance. But I think I think we do a decent job. Like I'm not I'm not too mad at it. My my kids do sometimes around the house call me coach. It's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> well, that must be fun. And I I would say as a, a martial artist, I think martial arts is a good way to safely bring that element into a child's life. I mean, for me, I was in all sorts of after school scraps and whatnot. And because of my unusual height at a young age, kids would point me out for fights thinking like, oh, if I beat up the mm. tall skinny kid, that makes me look better because I'm David versus the Goliath, you know? So mm -hmm. I had to I had to hold my own and make sure I wasn't going to become, you know, the whipping post for the neighborhood. And I ended up becoming like kind of feared and realizing like, oh, this whole martial arts thing isn't about kicking people's ass. It's about how I've improved 
my situation now and now people are looking up to me and I could either, you know, be responsible and treat them with respect and, and kindness and, and give them that respect back that they're giving me, or I could become a bully, you know? And, yeah. uh, and I wasn't a bully luckily, but, uh, I saw how martial arts could have opened that world up for me. Cause my, my, you know, childhood mm. wasn't that tough. My parents worked so much that I, I didn't spend as much time as maybe I would have liked with them. But, uh, either way there was that sort of latchkey kid kind of, uh, anything goes in my mind that, uh, yeah, who knows if martial arts wasn't there, I definitely wouldn't be podcasting right now. I, I don't know where I would be. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever, do you ever think back to that time? Cause I remember, I remember that guy. I remember that the tall guy, the tall, sweet boy that was getting picked on just for being his height. Like I, I kind of had that in a different way because I was like really athletic and I was, I was always being, you know, hoisted on the shoulders of my town for my athletic ability. And then people wanted to prove that they could kick my ass because of that. Right. So I, I was friends with that tall guy a lot. And so I, the question that I have for you is uh, like now, do you ever think back? Like if you can go back to then now with the knowledge of martial arts that you have now, like what would you do to all those evil little hobbits that were trying to come after you back then? Oh my gosh, man. <laughs> That's funny. There was one, there was one case where a guy who I actually saw at a bar like five years ago and, and I felt sorry for him where he, he mm. speared me uh, and got me real good. And I, I ended up getting on my bicycle and crying my way home. And if I, if I had one chance to like, you didn't even pedal, you were just like crying. Yeah. I was, I was creating a river of tears that was floating my bike home. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, if I could go back and, and retribute one loss, it would be that one, but I'm actually, mm -hmm. I'm pretty satisfied with all the other experiences. Although I did get into a few scraps. I, I held my own even in, even in before I learned martial arts, but I realized as I was learning martial arts, like, oh, this isn't for kicking people's ass. This is for preventing mm -hmm. people from kicking your ass. Right. Cause it's like, yeah. once you learn martial arts, you don't want to go around and use it all the time. That's exhausting. You're training, you're freaking busting your ass six days a week. The last thing you want to do is fight on your weekend off, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'll say this. So, uh, so like I was telling you before, how like if something scared me, I would thrust myself into it. When I first started doing judo, one of my biggest fears, because that's what, I, what everybody was telling me, is that judo wouldn't work. Mm. And because of that, I was trying to fight everybody. Like every <laughs> bully that we had in our town that was like within a reasonable age to me. I think uh, the oldest person that I fought was like maybe five years older than me when I was that age. And dude, I was like a little spaz, man. <laughs> it, it was it was crazy because it was like this one year, this like like it was this one summer, and it happened like in the period of a month. Like it, it was just this one day when I started doing judo, but every day before that, I was terrified and like like running from everybody and going home with my sister, and my sister would have to come yell at some little boy about bullying me, and I'm behind my sister crying, you know. And then the next day. Like, I won't stop trying to fight people. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. I didn't have that. I was, I was too, 
I was too timid. I mean, I got real pushed into those situations and, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, it definitely felt like, uh, like my height gave me a sort of fear advantage so that once I knew just a little bit of martial arts, like people were like, oh yeah, his arms are really long. He's going to punch me. Mm. There was one kid that flipped me off in the hallway and I just socked him right in the jaw. And that was kind of the last time anybody screwed with me was that. Well, like, mm. he just like stuck his finger in my face and I just locked, you know, loaded up with a jab and was like, yeah, all right, dude, whatever. Um, yeah. Moved on. And, and people were kind of like, whoa, that guy's got anger issues. And it's like, no, I don't have anger <laughs> issues. I just don't want to be like the the outsider looking in anymore. I want to be I want to fit in. And martial arts didn't ever really help me fit in with that group of people. It actually mm-hmm. made me realize, mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't need to be a part of that group, you know? And I think this is also how, getting back to, like, the language and culture thing, this is a big part of how, you know, people can sort of turn themselves down the wrong path early in life, is getting into the wrong, well, we'll call it microculture or subculture in your formative years, you know, and the language that you learn in that group can kind of skew what your, your, your life might be, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we, I don't think we realize how much our culture is, uh, I guess algorithm isn't the word that I'm using. Uh, logarithm is, is the word that I want to use, but I do. I, do, do you, I feel pretentious using certain words sometimes. I apologize if, if I'm sounding, um, uh, unappreciative of the fact that I got to be educated, but it's like, oh, anyway, I'm sorry. That's my insecurity. I apologize. But people don't realize how much culture is a language, mm-hmm. right? And how much uh, that language determines everything. It's like, there's, you know, you're, if culture is a language, it's made up of, you know, a multitude of dialects, right? And it's, it's just it's just super important to be able to have a true understanding of what your culture is or what your code what your code is. You have to have a something that you like. This is what I live by. This is what I stand for. Mm. You know, other, otherwise, yeah, it's, it's you know, I mean, if you if you don't stand for anything, you fall for everything. I think is the uh, the mm-hmm. quote. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I I very much like thinking of culture as its own language. And you know, I was just talking. Uh, recently, I, I think it was on Stoner Dads. I apologize. I don't always remember whether or not we talk about things on that. You know, it's like we we do we do actually get pretty high to do that podcast. I don't um, blame you. In in it goes in and it comes out, and then you know a few days later, you're like, what the heck did I talk about with those guys? Yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I've been uh, I've been ruminating on this for a couple of days, cracking me up. So one of the one of the cultural miscommunications between black people and white people, right? And this is a huge cultural miscommunication. So white people culturally, by the time they graduate high school, they already have a list of people that they know in life that they're gonna have to take shit from, right? Like, i.e. your boss, like you you might not like it, but you're gonna have to take shit from your boss, right? Uh, You might not like it, but you're gonna have to take shit from your wife, right? And like, there's different stages and development. Like you're like, okay, when I'm in this, I'm gonna have to take shit here. I'm gonna have to take shit from my coaches or or whatever. 
And as a black person, uh, going into kindergarten, you already know that you're not going to take shit from anybody, especially white people. And that causes a huge cultural miscommunication where even, even if you're a black boss and you have to, you know, stick it to your employees, your black employees a little bit, those black employees will see that black boss as racist. And it's just the cultural, it's just a cultural miscommunication about how to handle authority. Well, and, and it certainly feels justified the way authority has treated at large the black community in America at the very least. Uh, but it, it seems like, you know, there's a sort of, uh, well, it was only us mentality when a lot of people have fallen under the thumb of that uh, authority just in different ways. You know, it, mm -hmm. we all we all are oppressed in our own way. But yeah, no, it, it seems like uh, we're sort of at least speaking from my perspective as a white man, you know, we're sort of indoctrinated with the you're not the boss, he's the boss mentality. Listen to this mm -hmm. person. Whereas, you know, it seems like self-esteem and confidence um, for someone who can easily look in a history book and see the awful things that have happened just, you know, 20, 30, 40, even five, 10, two years ago, you know, to black people in America. Yeah. You're going to want to give your, your child some confidence and say, don't take shit from nobody. Don't let that affect you. You know, just cause mm -hmm. you know, there, there are these hateful people out there. Don't let that affect you. So I, I think it's justified, but it does create this, uh, clash almost of like, Whoa, yeah. man, I'm oppressed too. Whereas then you're looking, I'm like, no, 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 you're not oppressed. I'm oppressed. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a very compassionate thing, uh, to, to believe that that's justified. I mean, I, I don't think it's justified only because I would look around and the kids that were more successful early on were the kids whose families uh, were, they tended to be more in the church, to be honest with you. And, you know, not that, not, that, not that religion had anything to do with it, but I think the context of religion was a good base for them. And also it was uh, people that were told to respect everybody, right? Like I wasn't, I wasn't taught to respect everybody. And, and I was taught, don't ever let anybody disrespect you. And that, that is, those are two very different approaches to respect, right? Because respecting everybody is a quicker path to gaining respect. Not letting anybody respect you is a quicker path to not being respected, mm. right? So that, but then the other thing that I really noticed that separated people from black kids from my cultural point of view and black kids from the, uh, what should be considered black culture, right? Because what is considered black culture is the horseshit that I came up in, mm. right? What should be considered black culture are all of the black people that actually succeed from our community. And all of those people always had a sense of this shit isn't all about you. Right. And that took a very long time to learn from me. Like as, as wise as I was considered as sweet of a kid as I was, 
it was really easy for me. And I would I never I never once accused anybody of racism ever. But by God did I accuse people of not knowing how to respect me properly. You know, and that was like that was huge. That was huge for me. Like I it took me into my early 30s to realize like, oh shit, this doesn't all revolve around me. Wow. Yeah, this is this is a very uh complex conversation we're having here, Sydney. I really appreciate <laughs> no, I really appreciate you being this honest with me. You know, I, I I'm someone who probably has uh a interesting experience myself of race, you know, growing up uh with two white parents, one of them who, you know, for the most part had only black friends. My father has like uh, mm-hmm. all of his coworkers are black and, uh, yeah. So it was never like a thing for me to, to see anybody else's other than, cause in my life growing up, I had black, you know, role models, white role models. I had a native American, uh, godfather. So like I had all these other influences and, uh, yeah, it, it definitely, it feels like there's an impulse. What I'm, what I'm hearing is there's an impulse for, black men, black women to get themselves out of that cultural sort of context of less than by proving Mm -hmm. to the rest of the world, like, no, 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 I can do this. Right. And I think some people take that the wrong way. And what I'm hearing you say is like, it doesn't revolve around you. It's not about you. It's about us. Like, let's all Mm -hmm. like the way you act affects me in this sort of, but in a way, when we look at the world, that shouldn't be the way things are. We shouldn't judge you by the merits of other people who have the same skin color as you. We should judge you by your actions alone. Right. And I think that's something that uh, black people have to go up against, whereas maybe white people don't, because there isn't that prejudice built into to that. Yeah, and, and and not to not to like stick on this point too long, but what my God, man, it's like um, the the call for oppression, right? The the like it's coming from inside the house. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's you're not being oppressed by white people growing up. You're being oppressed by your own community because they're telling you how to think about white people. Right. And so one of the things that really crushes, I think, uh, black hood culture is the sentiment that um, they, they'll tell you as a black person, you have to work twice as hard as a white person for the same amount of success. And that's insane. Mm. That is one of the most. And but you don't know it at first. Right. You believe that at first. And then you don't realize it until you have to destigmatize yourself for a lot of things so that you can conduct yourself in a different way, right? And that's when you start to see, oh no, everybody can like fake it and just kind of like cruise under the radar. Like that, that is on the table for literally everybody. Mm. And everybody talks about like, we have to raise black excellence. We have to raise black excellence. Like that's not the issue. We have to raise black mediocrity. Mm. Like that's, we, we have to make a lot of people that are struggling realize like, dude, you can be, listen, you have to, you can work a little bit harder and for a lot more gain. You know what I mean? Like you just, and to be truthful, you just, in this world, 
have to make it look like you're working hard. Well, and like, it, it, in a sense, what I'm hearing is like their problems are easier to solve than maybe they think because they're focusing on a problem that's not quite solvable. And maybe that's working against yeah. them in the long run generationally, right? Where, where people who have this idea that, Oh, we've been oppressed and we got to be excellent because of that oppression. You're actually get putting yourself in a, in a detrimental position. Yeah, man. I have so many, I have so many absurd, un unsubstantiated conspiracy theories about why this is the case in the black community. And to me, and I, and, I, and I'll say this and, and you can like, take it from what you want. I think a lot of it comes from, uh, people, people that would be like considered to be people like me as it stands now. Like, you know, I'm a hardworking, successful black man, quote unquote, but I, I want, I want to pull everybody up. You know, I want to pull everybody up and, I think a lot of people are trying to keep certain people out of the game, you know, because there are a lot of, um, a lot of the people that aren't able to uh, gain confidence socially uh, in the black community are very charming, outgoing, hardworking people, but they're so indoctrinated by what they're being told that they can't apply themselves in a way where they can start to see the fruits of their labor, right? So they kind of like keep distance. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. My mom has a twin brother, right? And uh, he's just one of the you know best people you could imagine working with his hands. Like he he he's just a man. Like him and uh, my dad, my mom's dad, they own like apartments and stuff together. You know, they they have they have a business, right? And my uncle that I'm talking about can't even read. And he drives an Escalade. Like he has, he always has sick cars. His taxes are always paid. Like he's the man. Like he, all his papers are legit. Can't even read, right? Now, grow, all growing up, he would always complain about this. Um, this one corporate corporation in our area that wouldn't hire him. There's no way they'd hire him because he's black and it's all this other stuff. And about uh, five years ago, I was talking to him about that. I'm just like. You know, that's crazy that they wouldn't hire you. Like, I, like that was, you know, that's their loss, you know, because I know how hard of a worker you are. I know your talents. And, I, and you know, it's like, it's crazy that you couldn't get on some like low end position and kind of like show your ability and work your way up. And that's what I found out. He never even tried to get a job there. He never even applied. He just accepted that they would never hire him mm. because of who he was. So he never even, he never even, put himself out there. So right. that's what I'm talking about. Like he, he continued to grow the idea in his mind bigger and bigger every year that he wasn't working there for how much they would never hire him. Mm. Mm. You know? So I, and again, I'm not saying that's a hundred percent of the issues in the black community, but I think that's a lot of it. Mm. Well, and I appreciate this perspective, Sydney, because it's not something that uh, I readily have much experience of. But I'll tell you what, as someone who lives in <laughs> Connecticut, near Bridgeport, near New Haven, you know, I live in a very mixed area. We got people from all different walks of life and all different ethnicities. And uh, and yeah, I've. I've had my fair share of, of black experiences as a white guy, you know, <laughs> so I have, yeah. I have, it's, it's interesting, you know, like trying to talk about that stuff. I feel a little uncomfortable just because of the way, uh, 
white people are perceived nowadays talking about race is just obvious you know unless you're you're um a social justice warrior and you're talking from that perspective you run the risk of uh just sounding like a a, a racist right and yeah uh, yeah it's just interesting to to talk about you use the phrase yeah. black conspiracy theories and i love that because some of my best friends who are black have taught me some of the most interesting conspiracy theories throughout my life shout out to my friend maurice and uh and yeah i'm wondering you know if if you think there's something about we'll call it black culture or maybe even mm -hmm. the subculture of that hood culture that makes conspiracy thinking uh sort of ingrained like do you think black people are just naturally conspiracy theorists or prone to conspiracy theory because i'm a conspiracy theorist i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that but i think they have more than anybody in this country a good reason to believe in conspiracies i mean look at the whole thing that yeah. happened in philadelphia with the uh fbi throwing c4 on top of that um community i forget the name of the community the move move community was it oh yeah the move the move bombing yeah yeah so i mean they have they have good examples of of why i mean there's plenty others the oh, tulsa oklahoma bombing uh obviously you know what happened in the, the colonial days but yeah wh what do you think about you know conspiracy theory do you think it's detrimental in a way mm. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily detrimental. I mean, but also because I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a symptom of, you know, what was, what is already an established cultural sickness. And, and um, mm. I just stuck with the metaphor. I didn't necessarily mean to contextualize it that way, but yeah, the black community is sick, Mark. We need to <laughs> No, yeah, I, I think uh, society at large is. Yeah, it is. But it's a, uh, you know, because you can you can look at you can look at things historically, and you can see them as people, or you can see them as races. Mm. And if you see them as people, then you can look and see a situation has occurred. If you see them as races, then that takes away the human element of the situation. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll use like what is a somewhat of a current example, but not necessarily current. So. Mark, I'd, I'd never really pay attention to any of these shootings, right? Growing up, it was just like, I just accepted the fact that, like, white police are racist, and that's just what it is. And why would I even have to look into any of this? Like, what, what is the point of looking into? I already know this is why they're complaining. I see the hostility about it. They're taking care of that for me. Those are, like, I'm, I'm just, I'm an athlete. Those people are handling uh, our, like, uh, civility, right? And so the, the one that I finally looked at was the Philando Castile shooting. That was that was the first uh, police sh shooting tape that I'd ever seen, and I think that was in 2016. And I'm not even good with remembering dates, but I think the reason why I remember this is because it just stuck out to me so much. I watched that shooting, and I saw a cop get out of his car. He pulled a guy over, got out of his car, asked the guy if he had his license and registration. Philando Castile said yes. The cop said, do you have any firearms on you? Uh, Fernando Castillo said, yes, uh, I do. And uh, the cop said, all right, well, don't pull it out. And Fernando Castillo started reaching for something. And the cop said, don't pull it out, don't pull it out. Start backing up, put out his gun and shot, right? The, the emotions of that 
traffic stop changed after the cop was like, don't pull it out. And then Slando Castillo started pulling something out. Like, I don't know if it was his gun or if he was going for his uh, gun permit. I don't know what he was going for. But I know that was a very cordial traffic stop up until that point. And whether or not from that point on there was a miscommunication, I think the miscommunication was human more than racial, right? I don't think that was a racially motivated shooting. Now, you can make the argument like, well, the only reason why he would be afraid that he was pulling out a gun is because he was black. I'm I'm not going to split those hairs with you. Like, I don't know that for for a fact, right? He's a cop. I don't know what his experience is, you know? Mm. But I did not think that was a racially motivated shooting. And uh, that kind of opened my eyes to all of them. And I started kind of looking into all of them. And, you know, when I was looking at these situations, it was like, okay, I, I get it. This guy doesn't like that he's being talked to by this cop right now, but why not just let this situation go and then move on like if it's that big of a deal to you go lodge a complaint later you know what i mean it's like why 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 fight yeah yeah it, it's definitely it seems like it's being used to uh push forward this locked down orwellian situation like there's a sort of aspect to this that's antagonistic right it's not necessarily that they're setting these situations up this is a, a byproduct of the sort of uh, miscommunications that happen in the world of policing and and criminals but uh they send they pluck these stories out of the sort of matrix of, of violence that goes on on a weekly basis and they put them in the main stage to sort of pluck at people's heartstrings and get them to go out in the streets and and maybe riot and whatnot right i mean do you think that's an aspect to it yeah i mean and i'll, and I'll tell you this and and, I, and i've never had a problem with uh, law enforcement or anything but until i would say until like somewhere in my 30s uh anytime i would see a cop i honestly didn't even see him as a cop i saw him as a white person that i could fuck up like that's the honest to god truth and I think that, and again, that's like, that's that cultural, that's that cultural communication of like, well, I ain't going to take no shit from anybody, especially a white person. And a white person with a badge and a gun ain't no different than a white person. Right. That's almost like a, like a, a warlike mentality, like the mentality of an oppressed people. And, you know, essentially they are. I mean, people in this in this country are oppressed. Uh, we are. You and I are. When when everybody got locked down, that's oppression. You know. Oh, I didn't. I didn't get locked down, Mark. Y'all got locked down. <laughs> well, I I, refu I, it's, I refuse to be oppressed. All right. Let's get. I'm enjoying that. my parks. <laughs> Let's get into that because I feel like that was a big turning point for me. I was being told at work, uh, you know, oh, you got to wear a mask and you got to do this and that, and I quit. I said, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm gonna be a Lyft driver. And then when Lyft made me take mm -hmm. a picture of myself before I could go out and work, I said, you know what? Screw this too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to podcast. As crazy as that sounds, and it's worked yeah. out pretty fine. But, uh, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't mean uh, that we're all sort of mentally oppressed. But 
Legally speaking, there was certainly some uh, restraints. I couldn't go to the grocery store without wearing a mask. and uh, I could. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Tell us about that. I could. Did, did you get yeah, into some fights? Because I got into some. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. What, what were your thoughts during, uh, March in March 2020, like when everything hit the fan? Well, you know, and this is the thing, you know, getting into the, in the conspiracy theories and stuff. And the reason why maybe conspiracy theories are so prevalent in the black community is because we we growing up in poor environments and i think this is more poor than black because i think poor white people will have the same opinion but growing up in a poor environment you are more uh, to acknowledge the honesty of people like the darkness of people you know what i mean mm. um whereas like uh like like so here, here's here's an issue that sometimes me and my wife have right you know uh, as a person that is like me, sometimes people will do things to slight me every now and again. I, I don't mind. I, I know how people react to me. I'm, I'm 42. I'm, I'm used to it. Uh, but I don't deny it, right? Because if, if I deny it, if I start denying that somebody did something to spite me in a certain situation, then if I'm forcing myself to deny it over and over again, eventually I'm going to start resenting the fact that I'm doing all this work, right? So if it happens, then you know, we, we, we can just acknowledge it and we can move on. And so the other day, like my wife was doing drills with somebody and they were doing, like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a coach's pet, our head coach, Tim Hart. Like I am a coach's pet. Like I study everything that he says and does. I watch all of his matches. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of this man. And it was a technique that he had just got done teaching my wife and she's about to go into a competition. So she needs to have this, she needs to be drilling tight right now. And um, I wasn't in class that day because I was about to travel to Ohio and stuff and I didn't want to get too tired. And uh, so she's drilling with somebody who's not necessarily as tight of a drill partner as I am. And they're doing something, they're doing one of the technique, one of the parts of the technique very wrong, but it's a very key part of the technique. And I said something to him about how they were doing it wrong and that so that Ansley could start doing it. My wife could start doing it right so she can get some of those under her belt. And when I said that, it was acknowledged that I was right. But then the person she was drilling with was like, okay, you want to move on to the next technique, like to a whole different move. And, you know, it was like, okay, I get it. I'm not on the mat. That's none of my business. But there is no, there is, there is, there is no realm where that was the right thing to do. Like, if you're drilling a technique and you find out that you've been doing something wrong while drilling it, you should probably do it right a couple times before moving on to the next technique. Right now, that was just like a, that was just like a, a small slight to the person that said something from off the mat. I didn't take it personally, but it happened. Right. And, uh, we were just talking to my wife and like, as we were having a conversation, she, as we were starting to get into the topic of like her drilling for that day, she was already trying to like, you know, uh, what am I assuage the fact that, uh, that, that other person tried to slight me in a, in a, in a small moment. And she was like, not defending it, but she was always already trying to like, you know, you know, cast it in a way where like it didn't happen. Right. And uh, that bothered me. That bothered me a great deal. It was just like, I'm not like, you know, the the, the anger that goes off is like, well, like you don't trust me with the truth. Like that's, that's the truth. Like you think I'm going to fly off? You don't, 
you don't trust your man, you know? But um, really, I think that's also like a cultural thing. It's like, we don't have to focus on the negativity of that person, right? But growing up in poor environments, you have so many people that are trying to screw you over all the time, right? There's, it's just like, you have to constantly, constantly, constantly be aware of the dark side of people because the, it's almost like the nicer a person is, the more likely they are to get to be true. And they're trying to like worm their way into your confidence so they can just destroy you from the inside. So you have to be very aware of that. Now, flash forward to this, to March of 2000, was it? 2020. Not, so March of 2020. Uh, that's, yeah, my bad. Yes, 2020. COVID. Um, yeah. So March of 2020, uh, and they're... It was just like, none of it felt right. None of it felt right. Like I have a degree in economics. I can read data. Like I had no problem reading data. And when the first reports came out, anybody, and not just somebody who knows what a standard deviation is, but I thought anybody could look at that data and saw old people and morbidly obese people were the only people in danger for this. And when they were like, well, that's not true, but it's like, but I'm looking at the data. Mm. And and then all, all of my life, all of my life, herd immunity was a thing. You know, they would even tell you, let your kids fall on the floor so they can uh, get adapted to the germs so that they build up their immunity. And now all of a sudden, herd immunity doesn't exist. Well, this is, this is, this is the game. Like we, I know this game. Like I grew up with pimps and drug dealers. I know this game, right? So that's that's what it's easy to start having conspiracy theories where it's like the whole entire government is acting like a fucking pimp right now. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and, and people don't have that experience when they're sort of raised in these sheltered environments and put into these, you know, uh, pipelines to success, you know. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people take that for granted, uh, even in like a community where I grew up. I grew up on the sort of poor end of it, but there were people in my community who went on to go to Yale, went on to go to Harvard mm -hmm. and things like that. So there certainly was that strain of privilege present, but... Uh, it's really more of a shelteredness than it is a privilege. Mm -hmm. and, and those people end up being really puppets of this system that just rewards their consent. And, and we saw that consent management where, you know, you, you could look someone and see on their face whether or not they were about the propaganda. And the way you could tell was if they were wearing a mask or not. And I tried, mm -hmm. man, I tried to trudge through those grocery stores without the mask on. And it was like the Gestapo was there to kick me out every time. So I, I just, I kind of laugh just because I know you from listening to podcasts that you've been on and some of your stories so i can only imagine uh you know what kind of interactions you got into back then it seemed like a lot of comics were a little bit hesitant to talk about that and i appreciate it because it did kind of get old to listen to from the comics that did go into talking about it you know you go back mm -hmm. and listen to you know two jack bros or even dad meat or you know it doesn't, you can hardly tell with some episodes that the pandemic was going on because you guys were so in the moment and kind of just talking about what was going on with your world. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, that perspective. Um, 
do you think cannabis use had also something to do with, uh, you know, people's health in that? Because I, I smoked, I've smoked every day since I started <laughs> smoking. So, I mean, there's no, there hasn't been a stop for me. But uh, I, I heard yeah. people saying, oh, yeah, you know, THC or CBD kind of uh, can help you know, with your immune system. And um, a lot of my stoner friends never got COVID. Yeah, but I mean, we're also not getting tested. So true. <laughs> I mean, true. Well, I don't know too many stoners that are out there swabbing their cheeks on a regular basis. Exactly. Um, you know, because again, again, like stoners, that's another, that's another conspiracy crowd, right? Mm. And stoners are people like, nah, man, they're not getting in my cheeks. because it's like yeah you're trying to find out other stuff right so uh but yeah i mean possibly like i don't i don't know enough about uh the biological imprint that uh thc has in the body to to be able to make an argument that it builds the immunity that's not me Mm. but um well i i I do i do know i smoked the whole entire time i never got covid once Mm. Mm. well i did want to kind of segue into the topic of cannabis because when i was in high school i was on the wrestling team i was very concerned with being a good athlete and i was worried about smoking weed although my friends were like oh yeah you should try it i'd been you know propositioned several times what got me was seeing eddie bravo and he hates you know i said this to him once and he did not like me suggesting that he inspired me to smoke weed but uh, i saw eddie bravo rolling smoking weed doing jujitsu and i'm like the guy who invented jujitsu moves is high out of his mind like this is amazing i should try it and then i find out bruce lee used cannabis in his training regimen so i warmed up to the idea and i actually had a really um, beneficial psychosomatic connection that was forged from using cannabis in conjunction with martial arts. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that, if you've had that experience uh, being a stoner and also someone who practices and instructs others uh, in jujitsu. Absolutely. So I I didn't start smoking until I was like 22, 23. It was my senior year of college. So I got kicked out of a, I got kicked out of school for a year and then I went back. So I graduated uh, when I was, 22, I think. So the two, so yeah, it was a uh, 22, uh, 2002. And, um, so yeah, I was 22 when I started smoking and, uh, I started smoking because there was this guy in my, and so I went to Lafayette college. There was this guy on campus. He was from Texas. He was a football player and he had to get shoulder surgery. And so he couldn't play football, but he was really good at basketball. And he was on an intramural basketball team. And I went to go see one of his teams play. And uh, he wasn't, like, athletic looking. He was, like, a little bit taller than me. He wasn't jacked. He looked like he was, like, a hefty guy, you know. And this dude just didn't miss a shot. It was – I'd never seen anything like it in a competitive basketball game. Like, he did not miss a single shot. Every shot that he shot was beautiful. And he lived on my floor, and I knew that he was, like, an all-day smoker. And I was like, holy shit. It must not be that bad. You know, because up until then, it was just like, it, it's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin your life. Right. And I, was, I wasn't trying to mess up anything I was doing athletically. But I was injured at this point, and I wasn't able to run track anymore. So I started smoking. And uh, flash forward to now, I feel like it's safe to say. So if you remember uh, Sha, Sha Carey, a track star, 
she wasn't able to go to the Olympics because she was smoking weed. Mm. And they found that out like a month uh, before the Olympics. It was during the, uh, the USA Olympic trials. And um, they were making a big deal about the fact that she, because it's against the rules for the, uh, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, you can't, you can't smoke cannabis. Mm. And um, so they were making a big deal about it, saying that, like, well, weed isn't a performance-enhancing drug. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. There are, there are a lot of things uh, mentally that are uh, a roadblock as far as uh, training is concerned. Like it's 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 not easy to do something a thousand times, right? Again, and that's like when you're trying to get good at something, that's what you're looking at, right? You know, you you're you're waking up in a day and it's like, all right, I'm gonna do a thousand of these, a thousand of these, a thousand of these, next day, a thousand of these, a thousand of these, a thousand of these. It's not easy to do that unless you're high, right? <laughs> You can smoke a little bit of weed and all of a sudden that monotonous, uh, repetitive motion just, it feels different, right? It feels like, uh, instead of it being its own thing, it feels like something you're actually connected to. And you can almost feel yourself improving as you're doing it. Uh, and I feel like you can, you're depending on what type of weed you can smoke, it can give you a sensation of being more aware of your body in space, right? And training that way, training with a higher awareness of your body in space, I think is a performance enhancing aspect. Mm, mm. You think competing as well could do that? Cause that was one big issue for me as I, I smoked my junior year um, for the first time. And then my senior year, uh, I was the captain of a wrestling team among three other captains. And, you know, obviously with a wrestling schedule, I wasn't able to like sneak away and get high in between, like before my match, I was surrounded by my coaches. I couldn't bring pot with me on the bus to these matches. And I would always get overcome with like nervousness. And I had a winning record, but it was like almost even like wins and losses so i wasn't like the the best wrestler on my team and i chalked it up to that kind of mental pressure of like oh like i don't know when i'm in training and i'm high it's i'm not even thinking about what the other person's thinking but when i was wrestling all i would think about was the other guy i had to face and it was like this like you know it would just smash me and, and I realized, oh, I'm defeating myself before I even get on the match. And with cannabis, that tends to, to not, you know, whether you're just like daydreaming or something, you tend to not let that hit you as hard. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I, I do think there are some timing aspects that weed takes away from you, mm. as, especially when you're talking about like a grappling art. Mm, right. Um, there's definitely some time, but like you were saying, there's a there's a there's a huge mental component to grapple, right? Where if if you're able to stay positive, even if you even if you get crushed, that experience isn't as bad if you were able to maintain a positive outlook the whole entire time, which isn't really as easy, you know, when you're when you're not when you don't have cannabis or, or THC in your system, it's a lot harder to not consider the, the the human consequences of what's happened to you. Like, I am being physically dominated by another human man right now. Mm -hmm. And 
it's it's hard not to think that when you're sober because that's that's a very sober it is a very sober reality being being pinned down and not able to move because of the efforts of another human man that is that's almost every man's nightmare <laughs> yeah yeah for sure especially when you're like six foot five 160 pounds and you're going up against a five foot two guy who's 160 pounds of pure muscle and he's looking at you with like chest hair and i haven't even grown like a nipple hair yet <laughs> yeah yeah it's very it's very disconcerting right yeah oh man but, but flashbacks when i'm yeah when i'm high when i'm high i just don't think about things that way i think about how silly everything is personally and i'm not saying that uh that is what everybody else is going to think about like um but I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. Uh, I was just getting smashed up by a guy. Are, is your is your martial art jujitsu? I, I don't want to make that assumption. Yeah, I trained in jujitsu after high school. I did. Uh, I had a, an instructor who's actually been on my podcast before. If folks want to go back and listen to episode ninety eight, I believe with my my teacher Ryan Griffith. He uh, he was an amateur kickboxer and had a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu so yeah I, I learned to sort of uh hodgepodge of stuff from him and another guy yeah so uh so I, I use I play half guard a lot from the bottom okay and uh so somebody was trying to smash past me the other day mm. and you know I was on my right side because you know most of jiu-jitsu is played on the right and uh he was smashing my head up on me like this and I whispered into his ear right where I want you, <laughs> which is like, if I was sober, you know, like that, it was funny to me to say, cause I was high, you know what I mean? But like, if I wasn't, I would have been like, oh my God, he's about to pass me and blah, blah, blah. But you know, I was able to, you know, get my knee shield back in, get myself to safety. And I wasn't passed in that situation. So, uh, I, I don't like, I, I didn't have, I didn't, I, you can't have that experiment in real time to test whether or not if you weren't high, it would have been the same. But from experience, I, I think that uh, having THC in my system at that moment allowed me to be a little more relaxed while getting my arm smashed into my head. Mm, yeah yeah for sure. There's there's definitely an edge and I wonder if now that uh, cannabis is or I keep calling it cannabis and ever since you said that thing about pretentious I feel like a big dork calling it <laughs> cannabis but because one time my dad made fun of me for calling it he was like so you're smoking pot huh and I'm like no dad it's cannabis it's a my it's mentally it's good for me he's like you know he used to call it yeah. dope, which really pissed me off because nobody calls it dope anymore. You know, dope is like heroin yeah. now. But uh, but anyways, yeah, I definitely think that cannabis can help with uh, fighting. But I wonder if that is in the long run is going to sort of end up banning it. Because as you say, it's clearly a performance enhancing drug. So maybe, mm -hmm. you know, martial artists like Nick Diaz and Nate Diaz won't exist, in, you know, in 10, 20 years, because there'll be too much restrictions around professional uh, mixed martial arts. You know, I mean, they already aren't allowed yeah. to do it to some degree, but I think a lot of them get away with it. John Jones was in trouble for it a few years ago. I actually met John Jones once. He's a... Oh, nice one of my favorite fighters. I was so starstruck by him. I 
I don't even remember if I spoke English. I babbled uh, <laughs> good fight or something like that. But yeah, yeah, a, a lot a lot to, to go on here with, with martial arts. But uh, I, I did want to ask you, you mentioned this on an episode, I forget when, uh, you were in the gifted program in school. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering uh, if you could talk about what that was like. Because I wonder, you know, if the gifted program, you know, based on what, I don't know how much you've looked into it, but I've learned some weird things about it, having connections to certain groups. And I'm wondering from like the insider's perspective, what that was like for, for you as a child. Wow. I don't even know about this. Is it, is it connected to the Illuminati? Am I, do I, do I have a loose membership to the Illuminati? I don't know about right now. Well, according to some researchers, there is a pattern that exists with certain, uh, MK ultra candidates where Uh-oh. they, they happen to be, uh, gifted children. So that's not to say that every gifted child ends up being MK ultra, but that seems to be the pool they select from. So just watch out, Sydney. Oh, that's terrifying, Mark. I nap a lot. I don't know if that I don't know if that's an MK Ultra side effect. No, or, I, napping, I no. Like I, yeah. I feel like that's where they get you. I feel like you wake up from a nap and you're like, what the you ever wake up from a nap and you're like, I'm I'm still here. Oh, I wake up from a nap and think it's three days have passed. I mean, it's you know it's what I mean. Scary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that that could be some MK Ultra shit right there. Well, who knows? I mean, maybe we just cracked another conspiracy theory here. Hopefully, yeah. you, you're not <laughs> sleep paralysis. You're not describing, are you? No, nah, I'm the type of dude to wake up and look at my step counter and be like, holy shit, 10,000 steps? Where did I get to? <laughs> oh, yeah, man. that's me. Oh, man. Well, no, I don't. Based on everything I've heard so far, Sydney, I don't think you're uh, MK Ultra, but uh, but who knows? Yeah, maybe you need to keep your uh, eyes out for that. Yeah. Is there like an MK Ultra retard division? Is that like an autistic division of MK Ultra? If there were, they'd probably send those guys to do comedy podcasts. So yeah, maybe for sure, for sure. So uh, yeah, so I don't like the gifted gifted program for me was it didn't feel like anything different. I was just taken out of certain classes to do like long division and shit. Um, the the one the one experience that sticks with me from that is uh, so one of my. Uh, and this, this might be the source of why pretension bothers me in a lot of ways, but one of my uh, gifted teachers, who was also just a regular teacher, but, you know, uh, one of my teachers for gifted explained to me that because we were smart, we were going to have a hard time explaining to things, uh, certain things to some people that aren't as smart as us because they can't, they can't see how things work the way that we can see how things work. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I'm like armed with this information and, you know, I don't know if it was like, I don't know how recently after learning this was, but I was trying to explain something to my mom and she didn't understand it. And I was like, Oh, well that's because I'm gifted and <laughs> you're not going to be able to understand that because I understand it at such a level and you just, I can't explain it to you. And she goes, well, if you're smart, shouldn't you be able to explain anything to anybody? And I was just like, Holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, that that sounds more right. You know what I mean? Like that's the right thing. So that's been my opinion about like like gifted. It's just like 
it's like a lot of this is like uh it's just a, it's like tooting your own horn you know it's like it's just a bunch of people like stroking each other off about how smart they are and then you get you end up with a lot of like horseshit science like i hate horseshit science that comes out like uh one of the things that bothers me right now it's like really in vogue to say is that humans can't feel the sensation of wetness right the only thing you can feel is the temperature change allegedly hmm. right but it's like what are you talking about? I've been feeling wet my whole entire life. Yeah, like it's raining. How do I know it's raining? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I feel it. I feel yeah. it. I, if you put, you know, you, it's like right. if 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 I can't feel wetness, how do I know the difference between when I when I pick my nose and start doing this? Like, how do I know the difference between like slippery and then like a kind of like a. <laughs> like paste i just made paste out of my own snot you, you know what i mean like you yeah. can't tell me i can't feel wet that's insane that is in but that's what science says and we are like and me 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 and, T me and tim and matt argue about this all the time like they tell you uh you know seeing something fall isn't gravity it's a consequence of gravity and i'm like fuck you dude well it's gravity yeah we, we've heard on the show very recently that gravity doesn't exist. It's consciousness. It's an implosion <laughs> happening in your mind. So, Dude, the fact that we've only talked about that one time on the podcast is insane. I think we talk about it before we do every podcast. Really? We, 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 argue, we argue about this all the time. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's measurable. Like I, I remember Newtonian dynamics. 9.8 meters per second squared. You can measure the effects of gravity. You tell me we don't, we don't know what the fuck it is, and I get it. As humans, we don't know a lot of things. We don't know, like, literally what a lot of things are. But come on, I know what wet feels like. Right, right. Jeez. <laughs> I think that's that's a part of what the gifted program is about, and this is why I'm so glad I brought it up. And, and it's, it's about creating this divide this like fluffy feathered and maybe i'm biased because i live in connecticut right near yale university you know the second mm. highest endowment of any university in the world all these you know rich kids go there with all their privilege do you, do you know who has the largest endowment harvard oh well Princeton yeah, also. Right. Oh. Princeton has the largest per student, but Harvard has the largest. But there's a, there's a bunch of weird yeah. metrics. Why? Well, who are you gonna say? You may be well, right uh, too. Yeah. Well, La Lafayette College has the largest endowment of any small college, like what was considered a smaller mm, college. Right. Okay. Yeah. The Ivy League schools they're they're in a different category, but uh, yeah. that's where you went to school, Lafayette, right? Correct. Right on. Yeah. Mar uh, I don't know if it's named directly after the Lafayette, but Mar it is. Yeah, Marquis de Lafayette yeah. is a very, very interesting figure. If if people were gonna uh, maybe call you Illuminati, Sydney, it'd be for the Lafayette yeah. College, not <laughs> not for the gifted Dude, I wasn't program. Gonna say, I, was, I was like, oh shit, what did I just do? <laughs> yeah, Marquis de Lafayette was the man, you know, in a lot of ways, and you're like. You like look. You look at the history of Marquis de Lafayette, and you're like, was he the best dude on the planet or the worst? 
Well, that's the thing is, is with secret societies, I've been really spending a lot of time with this. There was the faction of French Freemasons, which obviously Lafayette was a part of. And then there was the, the more, um, we call them the, the American, but it was really more of a British style of Freemasonry. And they are the propagandists. The Freemasons yeah. who who talked a lot of shit were those guys. Like they they talked a lot of shit. So that's I think that's why uh we have this sort of yeah. dark light cast on the French Freemasons, but uh but yeah, it's a it's a murky subject. It sounds like you've yeah. you've looked into Lafayette though. Oh well, I mean, that's if you uh, going before you go into Lafayette. One of the uh, required readings is a book about the Mercado uh, Mercado Lafayette's life. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, did you uh, happen to read in there about his uh, city planning? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's yeah. that's that's one of the most fascinating points for me is uh, looking at the well. Some some people call it geomancy. Uh, I don't know if Lafayette would have plainly stated that term, but uh, you know it's obvious with a place like Washington D.C. You look at the roads mm-hmm. and they're all specifically you know making a certain symbol, but it's mm-hmm. more subtle in a place like Philadelphia, which I know you're more familiar with, and. Uh, uh, New York City, New Haven, where I'm from, you know, th- there's this very, um, it's like a, it's like a ensnarement that they, they create over the landscape. You know, they, they channel this sacred energy into certain buildings. And I, I don't, I hope I'm not getting into crazy conspiracy world on you, but, uh, yeah, Lafayette has become a, uh, a point of interest on this podcast lately, ever since yeah. we've been looking into ley lines and all that. Okay. That's, that's really cool. I mean, I like, uh, yeah, yeah, no, all of that stuff. All of that stuff. It seems like he had his. It seems like he had his fingerprints in literally everything in America, in like early America, mm. which is is kind of what is is like the more. It, it just seemed like uh, you know, it's hard to even contextualize what he was doing. It just seems like like everybody was like trying, like he was just like a, a French dude over your shoulder, like I'm gonna do it like this, you know. And it was just like, you know, I, I don't know exactly what he was doing, but it seems like he's like a. The, the the French Forest Gump of the Illuminati. <laughs> the French Forest Gump. I love that. That yeah. that Forest Gump comparison. I used that recently with Alistair Crowley because he seems to have put himself in the the world events of his day the same way Forrest Gump has, like in every place somehow. Uh, and yeah. it makes you wonder if you know certain people are a part of well. The simulation, right? This is a very popular conspiracy mm. theory online that everything's a simulation. I don't subscribe to it. Uh, I think I'm a little uh, too old for that. I, I don't know. I, I like the 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 organic version of reality too much to believe in the simulation. So, what are your thoughts on that, though? Because I, I have heard you guys talk a little bit about it on Stoner Dads, but uh, you know that's a comedy show. What are your what are your honest thoughts about the simulation? Oh, I don't know. It's hard, right? Because it's like you know, it's one of these things that makes me think like I'm really lucky that I have like uh, intellectual limitations where I can't think too hard about it. You know, mm-hmm. because 
like if we are in a simulation do we have the ability to contextualize the fact that we are in a simulation like because we're a part of the simulation so can we conceive beyond the simulation Mm. but that's no different than what we are actually existing in like we're part of the universe so we can't conceive beyond the universe so are we in a simulation in the sense that like we are in an actual computer program like i don't know Mm. (laughs) i don't know Mm. but it's like we're definitely part of a larger thing and there is definitely a connection between all of the parts of the whole, right? Like nothing separate from nothing, nothing within the universe is a separate entity from the universe. So there's that. And I think uh, intellectually, that's as far as I can go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't spend too much time on simulation, but I where I guess I take umbrage with it is the fact that it's taken long enough for me to try to wrap my head around what the universe is structured like. And it feels like computer, the computer simulation metaphor is just too convenient. It's too easy. And maybe that's just me being upset that I came uh, upon the idea too late. But, uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, it definitely is one of these uh, very popular Itch. ideas that's sweeping uh, the internet right now. Another one is this Tartaria theory. Have you looked into that at all? Have, has that come across your plate? Uh, not, not at least by that name. Mm. I don't know it. Okay. Well then let's leave it at that because I, I don't want to be the guy to introduce it to you. There's, there's, so, what? there's so much. <laughs> That's, inf- Mark, I am here to be introduced to the things I don't yeah. know. What are you okay. talking about? All right. So let me break it down for you. Cause there was a time when people asked me to go on their podcast to break this down. So there's a theory that at one point in time, a, very advanced civilization that had free energy technology was existing here in America and some kind of catastrophe like a mud flood happened and within a hundred years after that the colonists arrived took it over unearthed some of these buildings that were covered with mud and those buildings became like the federal court building. And the more I've looked into Tartaria, the less I believe in it. But what's really (laughs) weird, the weirdest part about Tartaria is that it comes from Russia. It comes from a Russian civilization that once existed and was actually erased from history. You can go back and find maps where Russia is actually called Tartaria instead of Russia. And, uh, And that, you know, little seed of information has borne all of these crazy theories saying like, Oh, the native Americans were Tartarians. Oh, the Mayans were Tartarians. Oh, the Swiss were actually doing this. And there's a lot of real information mixed into these Tartarian theories, but a lot of it is taking you down the, the direction of, Oh, and that means, you know, this conclusion. And it's a conclusion that I don't agree with. Uh, but that being said, it, it's a rabbit hole that is is growing by the by the day, and uh, yeah, it's fascinating. You know, a lot of people love the episodes we've done about Tartaria with people who are far more knowledgeable than I. It's, it is it's very interesting. I mean, just a little bit you told me. I mean, it's like. <clears throat> It is funny to think that like we dug up post offices and libraries. That's kind of funny. It's <laughs> well, like 
like the, the idea that we excavated bureaucracy yeah. is kind of hilarious to me. Well, and that's the thing is some people like they look at these Capitol buildings from the era of architecture where they built like marvelous, you know, things. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people scratch their head and say, oh, we couldn't do that today because look at how ugly our concrete structures look and compared to those. Mm. And I, I think that's just, you know, to mm. me. You know, maybe they just haven't looked into the history of architecture that much, but uh, but it is a fascinating like idea that can like send people down a, a path of discovery, which is exactly what happened to me. I started looking around like, hmm, could these be Tartarian buildings? And uh, I don't yeah. think they are. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big ancient advanced civilization guy. Mm. Well, I you can know, hit I, you with some some theories that are more worthwhile if you if you want to learn a few things. Have you ever looked into the ancient uh, the ancient American history and the different civilizations that were here before Columbus? Um, what, what do you mean by looked into? I mean, I, I get you you get kind of you get some of this stuff as you are perusing the ancient advanced civilization algorithm on YouTube. Mm. But what more specifically are you talking about? So. There's a story of King Abu Bakari, who was, uh, I think, a leader of the Masas somewhere in Africa. And uh, he was said to have left the west coast of Africa with 40 ships and 400 or 4,000 people uh, and sailed to uh, the New World. And about 40 or 30 years later, uh, someone comes back and says, oh, uh, yeah, we got shipwrecked, but uh, we need more ships. We need more ships. Come on, let's go look for the king. Uh, And all of those ships disappeared. And the theory is that maybe these you know, African royals from, you know, I think it was like 400 AD, you know, not too long ago, only 2000 or so years ago, uh, colonized parts of South America and became what was maybe considered the Aztec or the Mayans or contributed to those cultures in some way. So there's theories about that. Then there's also the whole Knights Templar up in the north who came up you know, from Scandinavia and maybe uh, settled Nova Scotia before Columbus got here. And then more recently, I've learned a theory about the Chinese and how the Chinese sailed up the Mississippi in, I think, 400 BC. Like they were, they were in the Mississippi River and like writing about the mound builders you know, before any Spanish had ever come to America. So mm-hmm. they, those are the kind of stories that have really fascinated me lately. Yeah, it's also, yeah, I, first of all, I love that stuff. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things too. It's like, it's, it's really hard to understand the global impact of the Silk Road as well. And especially because there were so many informations of the Silk Road, like there's so many different times and it was like popping and it fell off and it started popping again. And I would, I would love to, to, to be able to know like how much, how much of that impacted all of the different types of uh, artifacts that we find in places where they're not supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and then we have, uh, you know, LIDAR. We have LIDAR now, that's uh, the, which is the, the ground penetrating radar that they're using to see things. And I'm sure you know about the things that have been uncovered in South America and probably even what I'm about to say, but one of the cool things about it is they're finding these uh, megalithic structures deep 
in parts of Africa where they thought there were no megalithic building at all. And up until they've been able to discover it with LIDAR. So I'm really curious to see, you know, what comes of that and like, what is the, um, like how connected uh, these megalithic structures are to the ones that they found all around the world. Mm. You know, uh, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for the, the proof of the Atlantean super colony to be proven. Yo, so, all right, you got me going. I don't know how much more time we got because we're already <laughs> close to two hours. I do want to, I do want to respect your time, Sydney, but geez, I mean, do I, I say, I, Anytime my wife says something remotely, I'm like, all right, you're the one that started this conversation. Just remember this. <laughs> well, what you said about them using LIDAR, uh, I've learned that the jungles, like the Amazon and the Congo jungle, uh, and maybe even the big jungles down there in, the, in Southeast Asia, they have all these um, megalithic structures hidden underneath the jungle floor. And one of the theories is that the reason why the jungle is that way is because this ancient civilization was like a garden that overgrown, like they had the ability to supercharge their plants, right? And they were mm -hmm. growing things to the point where when their civilization collapsed for some reason, everything just overgrew. Like the jungle became like, you know, the like what you see in that History Channel show where everything like deteriorates, like, oh, what would it look like if all the humans disappeared? And they kind of use this CGI to show you what New York City would look like 500 years without humans and everything's just like overgrown well apparently that's what the jungles in South America and Africa are hiding like this ancient overgrown civilization uh, and even some people think the deserts like the Saharan desert uh, was once a jungle itself so like how many times mm -hmm. has this kind of cycle happened uh where you know a great civilization kind of goes out of control grows this huge jungle and then you know over a massive period of time that jungle becomes a desert like how much time does it take for a jungle to become a desert you know and that's apparently yeah. what happened in in egypt like egypt was not all sand when those pyramids were built it was like like what the congo looks like so some wild theories is a lot of rabbit holes to go down uh, in that realm. I think Graham Hancock is kind of pushing that forward in a, in a much more intellectual way than ancient aliens did, which is good. But, uh, mm -hmm. but it definitely, there's still things that for political reasons and for maybe even, uh, you know, new world order reasons, they're not telling us, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe it has yeah. to do with the Anunnaki who knows. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think I think we're going to find out that Africa, the continent of Africa, was the Garden of Eden. Mm. Now, there's there's someone I had on the show recently who says Florida was the Garden of Eden. What do you think? Of mm. that? No, well, he it's a probably it's like me. Florida is the Garden of Meth. <laughs> <laughs> It's not the guard. I mean, it's, it's communication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a little slight miscommunication. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's a. No, go okay. ahead. All right. I'll go ahead. Yeah, so, so, yeah you go ahead, Mark. <laughs> it was, uh, it was definitely, it, it could be the case that Florida was connected to Africa, even. I mean, have you, have you seen the, uh, the whole thing that Pennsylvania from Philadelphia to the ocean? 
and then up to New, uh, New York City and along to Boston, that whole strip of land is the same exact geology and environmental morphology as the uh, west coast of Africa, where Morocco is. So it's like at one point in time, conceivably, that was one, you know, body of land. I mean, I, I don't know if, if the, the Great Flood could have uh, maybe sunken what was in between those two. But yeah, who knows? Maybe the whole thing connected was the Garden of Eden. But what makes you think Africa was the Garden of Eden? I mean, that's that seems to be the prevailing theory. So when you when you when you look at the, the historical things that we do know about, like early man, and uh, we know that early man uh, started in Africa, and uh, so early Homo sapiens started in Africa, and it was a long time. Like they stayed in Africa for a long time before going out, and you know, like assuming like that was the garden. Like this, like why leave the garden of Eden? Like you have everything you need in Africa. Mm. Like there's like Africa is as far as. Um, everything is concerned like it's it's the richest in every mineral it's like like everything you need uh is in africa in a great abundance right and so if there if if the bible is somewhat of a historical account right so not necessarily saying like uh like we know that god created man but maybe the bible is saying we know that man's like started here like the same way that we say now right we know that uh man started in africa right but we in our books when we're telling history we don't we, we say it in a very um like a factual way we, we're not telling a story along with it right we're not telling like we're not using like the epic of gilgamesh to tell the story of of creation right mm -hmm. so it that could very well be uh I mean, so those, those are the things that make me think Africa would be the most logical source for the Garden of Eden, just because as far as everything we know now, that is where humanity started. Absolutely. Haile Selassie, one of the uh, greatest contributors to the uh, UN, which I don't think they have uh, really kept to his ideals. You know, the UN sort of degraded from the, the great, you know, uh, impetus that it started with but Haile Selassie you know he says that uh, Ethiopia has you know all of these secrets hiding in it about you know the true origins of man so I'm with you man I think that that's very possible I think the whole world was way more connected than we when than we are led to believe from history books you know there's this whole story of the Wangara trading network that you might be interested in looking into because it's similar to what you said about the Silk Road, but it's based out of Africa, this Wangara gold trading network. And what was interesting about this is that they had a language of signs. So they said nothing while they traded. And that's why there wasn't much left of their record in other countries. But these men from Africa traveled all through Europe, through Asia, and in European and Asian folklore, you have this myth of character of the moor's head the moor and the moor is always seen as like this wealthy king like almost like the biblical kings that visited jesus right and there's mm. all this like festival in italy even of the black madonna and all these things that are kind of shoved under the rug uh and i think it reveals this much larger role that 
the African nations played in world history before uh, this colonization period that you know teared so many indigenous communities apart um mm -hmm. yeah i think a lot of the secrets of of our origins were probably lost during that time period because yeah that, there were a lot of great kingdoms in africa that had you know immense resources and schools and universities and you know things that that people don't necessarily learn about from our history books that only talk about the colonization period of africa yeah, no, I, I love I love all of that stuff. And I feel like uh, so I, I have been uh, studying the Silk Road recently as well. Mm. And I'm only I'm only kind of like in the uh, the early part of it right now. But one of the interesting things that I'm learning is how religion was spread because of the Silk Road. Like Buddhism, there was a point where Buddhism was almost died off as a religion. Mm. And like, cause people weren't feeling it. Cause it was too, um, it was too strict. It was a very ascetic way of, uh, of finding enlightenment, enlightenment where you're like starving yourself, you're meditating on a rock. And it was a very uncomfortable thing. So once, uh, once Christianity kind of started popping and Christianity got a little popular, like on the Silk Road, just because there was so much about it that was fun. You know what I mean? Christianity had like, a, had some fun aspects of it. Well, Buddhism started adopting some of the more fun aspects of Christianity. So there used to not be any sort of uh, temple or shrine as, that was associated with Buddhism until Christianity uh, showed how popular like temples and shrines can be for people to like collect and worship. And if you can get people to collect and worship, you can also get people to um, give offerings and tithings much easier than the way that Buddhists were collecting the punches, like hanging out on the side of the road, like hoping that the good, like good natured people did something. And uh, so they start putting stupas along the, the Silk Road. And that was, that's basically how Buddhism started to get popular. Wow. Huh. I had not really considered the Christian uh, impact on uh, Asian religions, but it is definitely something that, uh, that I haven't looked into at all. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, Taoism, but uh, mm -hmm. but wow, that's very interesting. I'm glad you shared that with me. What's the book that you're reading, or where are you learning this about silk trade? It's uh, this. Is, I think it's just called Silk Roads. He has the, the guy that uh, the guy that does this book. He has two of them. One of them is called The Silk Roads, and the other one is called The New Silk Roads. And the new one is about the modern day Silk Road, like what is like the modern day epicenter of trade. And his, the, the point that he's making in that is that it's all going to go back to Asia. Like everything is like, because right now all these Asian uh, like powers are buying up um, corporations in America. Like uh, I, I forget which corporations, but dude, I was like listening to this. I was on the like, I listened to these audio books and I'm falling asleep. And I listened to this new Silk Roads one, and it was just freaking me the fuck out, man. Because it's like, like, China, like I don't know if it's, uh, I, I don't know if these are the ones that were bought. Like I would have to like go back and listen again. But it's like, like, like every major corporation is being bought up by foreign entities right now, and they're all foreign entities in Asia. But oh, yeah. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, it's called The Silk Roads by Peter uh, Frankopin. And it's uh, it's pretty good, man. Okay. And so also, yeah, are you familiar with the the, uh, the Sikh religion? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I've met a few Sikhs in my day. Yeah, we haven't had someone on the podcast to talk about that religion yet, but I plan on it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Dude, I, 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 I mean, I'll definitely tune in for that one because I'm trying to. I'm so I'm so every now and again, as you're as I'm studying things on the Silk Road, they'll explain something. I have to like stop and then go read about that thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So right now, um, I'm trying to get into Sikhism because like that was another. That was that was that was like caused by the blending of other religions in a certain area. Like it came out of the Fertile Crescent, uh, but it wasn't. It was like Buddhism. Like it was like the combination of like Buddhism and, and Hinduism and something else created Sikhism, mm. or rather, the 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 gurus, the Hindu gurus, realized that they had to start um, training and militarizing. And but they needed to do it in an honorable way. That's why they all carry like that the the the, the sword, the, the knife, mm. and they have to wear those rings that they wear. And uh, yeah, and, I, and I'm 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 ruining this for sure. <laughs> but it was like yeah, it was like because Sikhism is passed down through gurus, and the first guru that uh, militarized the Sikhs is accredited with like creating the Sikh religion. And that's basically what it is. It's just like, you know, being honorable and like sticking up for uh, injustices and shit like that. It's pretty neat. Wow. Yeah, I love doing that. And I got to give you credit on, you know, Stoner Dads. You guys do that where you, you'll mention something and I'll stop the podcast and I'm going to, you know, I'm looking into it. And I'm like, oh, shit. And then I comment like, yeah, you guys got that right. But there was something you left out. <laughs> and then I go back and delete the comment because I'm like, oh, I sound like an asshole. But uh, but no, I love it. I pulled yeah. this book off my shelf. Maybe you'll be interested in it once you get through this one. Uh, this is a classic. It was written uh, a while ago by a man named Sir John Mandeville and it's his adventures okay. in uh, along the Silk Road and he talks about meeting the great Khan in China uh, and mm. he talks about like the the Mongols in a sort of mythical way and it, it's just like a it's a funny book because at the time the goal wasn't to be like totally historical it was probably to tell a story so he was mixing fact and fable together uh but Mm -hmm. you know i'm i'm a little bit skeptical towards what's fable and what's reality so sometimes i read into some of these things a little too literally but we're uh we're approaching the the top of the second hour here sydney i really want to thank you for your time spent with me today and uh yeah folks who haven't tuned in yet stoner dads two jack bros uh you're a comedian so people can go and check you out uh you have road dates i assume um Mm -hmm. anything else that you want to plug anything else uh that i should leave in the the episode description for people to follow up on yeah, no, mostly it's just like I really want people to check out uh, Two Jack Bros. That's one of my, you know, one of the goals that we had was to first uh, get it established into something that we were, uh, we felt lucky that we were a part of. We've, we've done that. And now uh, step two is to get it out to the people that um, can get something from it. Not, I mean, because it is, it, comedy is anything that I'm a part of, comedy is going to be the overall, the, the overall, arching arc of it all like i'm, I'm a comedian i want to i want people to laugh and have a good time but some of the messages that we get back from people that like watch or listen to two jack bros really do touch my heart and 
it, it just like I, I I get a a great sense of just just feeling so very lucky that I get to be a part of that type of impact for another person. Mm. So I would like to feel more of that because it feels really good. Well, I'll tell you what. I said it at the beginning and I'll say it again. Listening to two Jack bros makes me want to be a better partner to my girlfriend. So I love it. And, uh, and yeah, I'll keep listening. I noticed you guys hadn't put uh, an episode out in a few uh, weeks. And then I saw one came out two days ago. So I was glad to see that. I'm glad you guys are still (laughs) pumping out episodes. Yeah. And and I will say this too. I want to, I want to be very clear about this because if we miss an episode of Stoner Dads, people want to bite our heads off <laughs> but dude people are very understanding the two jack bros fan base is very understanding and and honestly they probably too understanding because uh we shouldn't be missing episodes of that. but i want to thank you guys for being so sweet about it yeah mm-hmm. well i love it i mean there's such a backlog for me because I, I found your your content relatively recently. Uh, I've enjoyed, you know, I've listened to every episode of Stoner Dead. So it's been great to to go back and listen to old episodes of Two Jack Bros. So I got a bunch of episodes to to burn through if you guys aren't uh, aren't putting out new ones. But yeah, stick to once a week, you know. Yeah, yeah. At the very well, least. Can I say this for those of you, uh, if you want to check out two Jack bros and if you're, if you want to get familiar with stoner dads, episode 193, that was the episode when we switched to the current interview format. We used to not be this format. Mm. So episode 193 is Matt McCusker. Episode 194 is Tim Butterly. Mm. And that is who I do stoner dads with. Mm. And, uh, I, 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 again, like when I, when I, design when we designed the podcast we were designing it like with like how can we draw the most out of like some of our more ridiculous friends and matt and tim and of course shane were the three people that i had in mind when i was like designing it and they 193 194 that is a great introduction into what we do with uh two jack bros I love it. Yeah, that was one of the first episodes I listened to was McCusker. He's been on this show way back when. He was so kind to join me when I only had 25 episodes out. I think he was episode yeah. 26 of this podcast. And uh, and I, I enjoyed listening to uh, your first interview with Rainey, too, because Mike is... Oh, my God. He is, he is always a trip, you know, some of his stories. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, that, and that's, a, that's a very good point. So the first like five or six episodes were with all of my, all of my comedy friends that I've known for over a decade. Mm, mm. Right. And that's, and I wanted to get the momentum of doing it with them so that when I was doing it with people I didn't know, I would stick to the same way I was doing it with people I did know. Yeah. Well, and yeah, go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you, but you just struck me, and I, I want you to to convey this to your your friends if you can. I used to listen to you know a lot of garbage comedy podcasts that I cannot listen to anymore because the authenticity that you demonstrate and the guys that you podcast with, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's the Philly crew, but there's guys in New York that you guys work with too. And it's really mm-hmm. just your vibe, like the vibe that you and the podcasters you and comedians you, you work with, uh, it, it's, 
it's too much to turn back to that fake stuff. You know, I've gotten so much of a dose of like what real comedy is that like, uh, I'm not going to put any shade on any podcast, but yeah, there's, there's shows that I used to listen to that. I'm like, Oh my God, how could I have sat through that for an hour in comparison? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, that's just something I want to say, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that you guys are real, you know, and you don't, you know, thank uh, you. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I, I want I always say this because I, I want to give the secret away uh, because we just we really do love each other. We we really do want the best for each other. Like, mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. we're not competing with each other. We we really truly believe in a rising tide raises all ships, and we believe that before Shane got SNL and started to get famous and started to, and as soon as that happened, it was just like. There was there was no aspect of Shane moving forward that happened without his voice. Mm. You know, like every time he ticked forward even a little bit, he pushed us a little bit further. So that that is kind of uh, I think that's an aspect that luckily brought us all together because we 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 all had that same belief. And it's not hard to have, man. It's not hard to to get past. Like, yeah, you're going to be je- like, I, I get excited when there's something that something happens, when something happens to one of my friends that I get a little jealous for, I get excited about that because that jealousy isn't true jealousy. It's inspiration. It's like, like I'm jealous that, that Mike Rainey has this cool book called on perks out right now that people are buying up and people are getting the audio book of. It's a beautiful, vulnerable book that he put out right there. And the reason why I'm jealous of it is because I'm jealous of his motivation to do it. I'm jealous that he did it. I'm not jealous that he has a product out that he's getting recognition for. I'm so happy for that because now all that darkness that he went through wasn't for nothing, you know, Mm -hmm. and he's able to help shine light on other people with that. But at the end of the day, man, if I didn't have friends that I was like, that I was a little bit jealous of, like I I did, I I couldn't imagine uh, finding as much worth in my life. Yeah, well said, man. I I think it's a testament how popular your shows are to how real you guys are because, you know, people listen to podcasts and and they they get this parasocial feeling of being friends and you, your your shows that you guys do, you feel like you're one of the guys listening to it. And I hope that continues to to grow and escalate. I hope it doesn't you know, get out of control uh and I hope you guys continue to uh love you know and, and share that love with others because that's really what it comes down to i mean this show we try to to bring that love into uh conversations with people like yourself who who've walked a, a road less traveled and maybe are are seen as black sheep in in some people's eyes or maybe seen as you know crazy to others who who just don't get them so i really appreciate this conversation sydney uh for everyone listening please do go and tune in subscribe wherever you're listen to this go and subscribe to two jack bros sydney and ainsley talking about everything that you have heard about on this show with comedians it's fun they go through the chakras you learn a little bit about metaphysics and what it means to be human and and you laugh along the way so go in and support them and while you're at it smoke a bowl uh with stoner dads (laughs) once a week uh I'm on the Patreon. You should sign up there too. But until next time, folks, thank you for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now.
All right. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning into this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Of course, you can check out our guest, Sydney Gant. Wherever you listen to podcasts, he's got two really amazing podcasts that he does and several others that I've seen him appear on quite regularly. Of course, those podcasts are Two Jacked Bros and Stoner Dads. The clip that you heard at the beginning of the episode was from episode 28 of Stoner Dads. And of course, Sydney being a comedian, he goes on a bunch of comedy podcasts. And as a matter of fact, I just booked him on Sam Tripoli's uh, Zero podcast for a great conversation about the chakras. So if you want to hear Sydney's thoughts on that, go and check that out. And of course, while you're there, be sure to follow and subscribe to us on Rockfin. Sam Show Zero is available for free. So even if you don't set up a paid account with Rockfin, you can still uh, watch most of the episodes of Zero for free. And some of the episodes uh, are free on my Rockfin channel as well. Of course, we do encourage you to subscribe. And when you do, make sure you sign up through the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy Rockfin page. That helps us out. Uh, While you're at it, if you want to help out the show, go over to the Patreon. You may have noticed we do the trailers now, letting you know what episodes are uh, behind the paywall. Some of those trailers will be for episodes that uh, will never Uh, make it to the free feed and others will be for episodes that are early releases so just to clarify there but shout out to everybody who signed up for the patreon very recently i do appreciate that if you don't like rockfin or patreon we also have a substack for eight dollars a month you could support the show on substack read the articles i've been writing and i also will be posting videos there the whole back catalog of podcast episodes are on the Substack up to episode 130 something i don't think that it's been updating regularly but uh, i will fix that and there will be bonus content on the Substack as well so wherever you like to support the show we've got options it's all in the episode description just go ahead and click there Uh, what are you waiting for if you've listened to this episode and you've listened to all the old episodes of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast don't you know there are bonus episodes that you you couldn't have listened to unless you're on the patreon so go over there check it out i just recorded uh, three or four really excellent conversations with a gentleman uh, who's an author and a native american traditionalist his name is lauren w jeffries he's spoken with me over the course of four or five different conversations now and some of those will only be available on the patreon so go and check that out today Uh, we really do appreciate everybody who's supporting us on the show we being myself and tara uh, my girlfriend who i live with and yeah we're making this happen going on more adventures this coming spring and Uh, hopefully getting a more reliable car so we can go on some long distance journeys and see what's out there in this esoteric america of course that is the title of another podcast i do that has its own rss feed you should subscribe to it wherever you listen to this check out our uh, 20 episodes that we've recorded so far and of course those are very visual uh, episodes so you may want to go and check out the youtube channel as well my family thinks i'm crazy on youtube all of that is available on my family thinks i'm crazy.com and i just paid for 
the uh, websites, uh, you know, yearly, annual fee, whatever the, <laughs> whatever you call that, the bill to keep the website up and running. So I would really appreciate it if anybody could support with a one-time donation, uh, whether it's Cash App, Venmo, or PayPal. Uh, that would be really, really helpful right now. Help me get through this next uh, bill period here coming up. And yeah, yeah, that's all for for now, folks. We've been getting so many listeners on the show lately that I'm going to have to uh, pay twice as much to publish the podcast just because of the way Transistor's hosting works, which isn't a big deal. I'm going from $50 a month to $100 a month, and we've got uh, enough supporters on Patreon to cover that. But all the more reason for folks to send in a one-time donation if they can. Uh, every little bit counts even if it's just five bucks and a a nice kind message and i'll be sure to read your message and give you a shout out of course if you don't have any money to donate that's fine you can always leave us a five star rating and review and i will give you a shout out on the show here so let's give some shout outs for the latest five star ratings well, I just checked, and it's the, the same one that I read last time. So go over there and give us a five-star review. We need new ones. Uh, what are you waiting for? It's a new year. We want to make it back up into the top of the charts. We were in the top 20 in the philosophy genre for a while, and that's thanks to all of you amazing folks who tune into this show each week. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate all the guests who are kind enough to join me. And we have some really uh, rock star, rock solid guests planned to be on this show very soon. Oh man, I'm excited. I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give it away. <laughs> if I don't sound excited, I'm a, it's a little late right now. So I might sound a little tired. I'm not tired. I'm just trying to be soft spoken over here and not yell in the, in the house. But yeah, I'm excited to have a a very prolific author scheduled to be on the show. Uh, It's it's not this month, but next month. So uh, I'll be doing a lot of research in between now and then. Hint, hint, if you're a keen listener, you may pick up on who this author is based on uh, what I may or may not talk about on the Patreon with Juan tomorrow. Because Juan and I, of course, we love to to chat with each other about uh, what's going on with the podcast, what we're researching, and all that good stuff. So support him on Patreon if you can. If you're already signed up for the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, why not sign up for Juan's too? What the hell? I'll go ahead and give him a plug. And while I'm at it, big shout out to HitKit. That's HitKit US. You can buy yourself a custom-built hit kit that's right custom built by the hit kit owned and operated by garrett he's a a hell of a dude and he makes a really cool product it keeps your lighter your joints your blunts whatever you're smoking uh, safe and sound in your pocket in a nice case and you can get whatever design you want on the cover whatever you want you just send him the image and it's yours you can get your name you can get the New Haven Colony Seal, like I got. I love this thing. Super cool. Keeps my blunts safe in my pocket when I'm on the move. 
So go and check it out, hitkit.us. The link is in the description as well as all the other links for what I have said so far. And of course, big shout out to Sydney Gant for joining me. I'm a huge fan of him and especially his podcast, Stoner Dads. So if you found the show because you're a fan of Stoner Dads and you wanted to see what the hell Sydney was talking about on some weird conspiracy podcast, welcome. We don't always have comedians on the show, but we've had other comedians here on the show before. So uh, go and check those out if you like comedy or uh, take a dive into one of the many weird topics we've discussed on this show before. Uh, if you're new to Sydney Gant, well, I recommend Stoner Dads. It's a hilarious show available on YouTube. Actually, I think I'm going to go watch the latest episode of Stoner Dads right now. So as for you guys out there, wherever you are in the now, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. MFTIC. Yeah. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijacking perception tricking the population with holographic projections we see through it the system is unraveling i'm astral traveling through the library of the vatican on a sacred journey i embark with the squad forever spitting truth like mark on the pod gotta know the facts never hold back because i ain't getting caught up in the soul trap i dissect the fabric of reality looking for the answers searching through the galaxy you might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages a lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robin Fulber's plasma gun Hop in the ship Take the controls They highly intuitive I figure it out easily Lift off Accelerate through a tunnel Until I see the light Fly into the sky Get flanked by six F-35 Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade <laughs>